from the very beginning. We have wandered. We have searched the world for meaning and a higher purpose. He is the answer. He is the way. He is the truth. And He is the life. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name. Good morning. That's our worship pastor at the Nolansville campus. He just has the best voice. Like literally, like I just get a little bit pumped up. I'm kind of contemplating taking off my jacket because now I'm a little warm. Like just the hype and the excitement of, of, of being in this place, but not only being in this place, but also um, I, I just say being with all of you um, and, and the chance that we have, the freedom that we enjoy and, and, and the pleasure that it brings us to kind of come together, to high five, to shake hands, to give hugs and to say hello to one another as, as a people. Um, as a community of faith. That's one of the things I love about our church, and I'll kind of like jump off this hill and dive on to the next one, is that, that it's still called Rolling Hills Community Church. I, I love that even when we looked at a URL online that was like Rolling Hills Community, that's a lot to type out. We, we didn't want to sacrifice the idea of community because I kind of believe that that's what God's in the business of building here. And I'm so thrilled to get to be um, a part of it with you. For those of you who are first timers here today, I just want to extend a special welcome. Thanks for checking this out and, and for trying this body of faith. My name is Nick Allen. I get to be the campus pastor at this location, um, and it's a joy to be here today. Last week, um, Chase Baker, our family pastor for all the locations, was here in this spot closing out the last series that we were in. And I want to tell you about a little road trip that he and I took um, several years ago. It's been more years ago now than I want to even remember because time just flies and we're all getting older. You're not getting older. I'm getting older, but that's okay. So we're on a road trip to Kentucky um, who, um, as of yesterday, are they still in the final four? I don't even know this. Me, like final four for me is not watching basketball. It's just the social politics of being in the office and making sure that my bracket is better than other people's brackets. Okay. So we were on our way to a campsite in Kentucky because we needed to go and check out a new place. So we are leaving Nashville and that whole stretch of road where 65 and 24 are the same for a little bit, like we're just, we're on 65 and 24. We're heading like north and east or west, whatever, as the case may be. And, and there's a spot where where those two roads diverge, where they separate again. And you've got to make sure that you're either paying really close attention to the signs or listening to the Siri in your car to make sure that you don't go the wrong direction. So Chase and I are heading like what we think is 65 and we actually stay on 24 and we are veering like, like minute by minute, mile by mile, way off course. And it wasn't until we sat and looked at the mile markers, you know, those like things on the side of the road that say mile marker this, mile marker that, mile marker. And we realized that the numbers changed all of a sudden. What was previously in just like the double digits of mile markers was now in excess of like 230. And I start to notice, hey, I think we're not on the right road anymore. Logging into our phone, we realized just how long we had not been on the right road and how long it was, in fact, going to take us to get on the right one. Mile markers do something. They, they tell you where you are. They, they also communicate to you, if you can do basic math, how far you've come, but also how far you have yet to go. 
And, and you start to realize really quickly that when you are heading in the wrong direction, you're going to have a really hard time getting to the right destination. What should have taken us no more than two hours, hour 45 tops, even with a pit stop to get a Coca-Cola, took in excess of three and a half hours in order to get to the right place because of the reroute that we had to take. When, you, when you're headed in the wrong direction, when you, when you go the wrong way, you're going to have a really hard time, maybe even an impossible time, ending up in the right place. So we start out with a question at the beginning of this series, which is aptly called Jesus. We're heading into Easter. It's our holiday. It's what we claim. Christmas gets all of the joyous celebration. But for us as believers in Jesus Christ, Easter is really it. It's the moment in our church calendar where we celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I want us to claim to be a people who celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every single day, but not quite so much as we do on Easter Sunday, because it's the day that culminates everything that we believe about faith and the only thing that gives us validity that the rest of this stuff in fact is true if jesus did not come back from the grave then we ought to investigate the rest of the bible's claims a little bit more closely to find out that none of them are in fact true but if christ does live if he remains alive if he died on the cross and was buried and then came back then we realize that everything else that this word claims to be is in addition to that truth. So we ask ourselves this question at the start of the series, like, what is it that you want today? Because I think that whatever it is that you want today is the same thing ultimately. If you boil it down, if you reduce it, if you let it simmer in heat until it's at its like irreducible core of your human desire and my human desire and all of our human desire, the thing that we want the most is life. Like, we want to live. And we know that something is wrong, that something is damaged, that something is out of whack when we ever get to that place. And people do. Like, people do get to that place, literally on the edge, where where they no longer want to live anymore. And you realize that when you end up in the spot where you no longer want to live anymore, nothing else about your life, no other direction, no other destination, no other opportunity, no other relationship makes any sense at all because you don't want to be a part of any of it. And if you're not in that place, then it means you're in the other place, which you're in the place that regardless of whatever the challenges are, whatever the concerns are, whatever the difficulties are, whatever the relationships are, whatever the dynamics may be, if you're a person who wants to live, we share that in common. Like we want to be alive, but we don't want to just be alive. We don't want to just go through motions. We don't want to just have some mundane existence day to day, the earth Oh, scientific I'm about to get. Spinning around on an axis, rotating around the sun every day, every month, year after year after year. Seasons coming and seasons going and bringing all the gray hairs with them. I've got them and I'm proud. Like, we realize that we want more than just that. More than just 24 hours in a day. More than just 365 days in a year. We want something more. It's been that way since the beginning of Deuteronomy when God looked at his people and he set before them this choice in chapter 30, verse 19. It says, this day I call on heavens. It's the Lord speaking. I call on heavens and the earth as witnesses against you. There's not much else beside that. The heavens, that's everything else. And the earth, that's where we exist in this space-time continuum that we enjoy right now. Everything, call on everything as witnesses in a courtroom drama against you that God himself has set before us life and death, blessings and curses. 
And what he tells us to do is to choose life. Not only for you, but so that you and your children, your descendants may live. And and in choosing life, we get to love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast. That means remain connected to him. It says, for the Lord is your life. The idea of, of, of life is the Hebrew word haya, and it really just sounds like karate, like haya, like haya. And it just means to be alive, having life. In Psalm chapter 50, it takes a different turn because it's literally, it says this in Psalm 50, for every beast, haya, in the forest is mine, declares the Lord. He's saying every beast in the forest is mine, declares the Lord. Every living thing in the world is his. He declares us his. Because it's the Lord who gives life, sets us before us, and allows us to choose it. So here's a difference between Christ followers, people who call themselves Christians, people who, who like wear that as a flag, people who, who print that as a banner over their foreheads to walk out in life and when they're asked or when they're confronted or when they're observed because, you know, you want our actions to reflect it. Like here's the difference between us and the rest of the world. We believe, it's in your notes this morning, that Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the way to live Chaya and be fully alive. He's the way to belong to God. Every beast is the Lord's. The way to live and belong to him is Jesus. It's kind of a memory verse for kids growing up attending like Bible clubs in the summer and Sunday school on Sunday mornings. John 10, 10, Jesus is telling people, we're going to read it in context this morning, but you kind of know it at the outset. It says, Jesus is communicating to people. And he says, I have come that they may have life And have it, I memorized more abundantly as a kid. A lot of the modern translations say, have it to the full. That life is the Greek word Zoe, which is a great name if you're going to have a baby girl. I know some people who might be having a baby boy soon. I don't know that I would recommend Zoe to you, but I don't know. You do you. We'll get there later. Okay, the idea of Zoe is a great name because it means life. It's the state of one who is alive. And zao, not zoe, is a variation of that word, and it literally means to enjoy real life. So, so, so Jesus is saying, I am the way to live, to be alive, to have zoe, but not just an ordinary zoe, but to have zao, to really a life that you can enjoy. How? Abundantly, or to the full, it's perisos. It means exceedingly more than all. I had a pastor, my first ministry, doing youth, youth stuff, like hanging out with middle school and high school kids. And that pastor used to say all the time, all means all, that's all all means. And, and Jesus is coming and saying, I want to give you life, but I don't want to just give you any life. I want to give you more than all the life that you can ever imagine or have. And so we raise our hands and say, what is it that you want today? I want that. I don't want the ordinary life. I want the more than all kind of life. I don't want a, a simple life or even a problem-free life. I want the life that you promised in Scripture when you looked out at a group of people and said, I am the way, I am the process, I'm the route that you take when you want to have that kind of life. If we were to paraphrase that and look at it in the context of what those words mean, Jesus was literally looking at a group of people and saying, I have come that they may have a real enjoyed life. And 
that doesn't just mean easy, like you enjoyed a party last night because it was fun and you attended it and you didn't have to clean up after it. It's not just enjoy the way that we contextualize that in our American mindsets. It's full of joy. Not just happiness in the circumstance, but, but the kind of joy that lasts in spite of the challenges that come. I have come that you may have a real, enjoyed, full of joy life and to have it exceedingly more than all, more than anything that you can ask or imagine. Jesus came to be the route that we would take to have that kind of life. And who did he say that to in John chapter 10? If you have your Bibles with me this morning and you want to turn to John chapter 9 and 10, You'll, you'll figure it out because in John 10, 1, he says, very truly, I tell you Pharisees. So he's talking to an audience of people that didn't like him. He's talking to an audience of people that didn't enjoy him. He's talking to an audience of people that he did not have a whole lot of favor with. And there's a lot of transitions that happen between the chapters of Scripture. And, and, and as we know, and maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but I'll just go ahead and throw that as an aside to you. The numbers in your Bibles were given to you as a favor, but were not there originally. Like when the Bible authors sat down to put together this work for us, they didn't organize it into chapters with convenient little headings so that you and I could reference and find stuff easily. They were written as like, like chronicled histories and books and letters and prophecies. And some of them were just speeches that were spoken out loud that were eventually written down. Those numbers were given to us as a favor. And sometimes, let's just be honest, the numbers make perfect sense. They stop and start at transitional moments in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And sometimes those numbers come right smack dab in the middle in one of his speeches. And you think, oh, this is great. I read John chapter 9 and tomorrow I'll read John chapter 10. And when 24 hours has elapsed in your life, Jesus is literally speaking those words back to back. You need to pick back up where you left off because in John chapter 9, a circumstance happened. That prompted the very words that Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees. We don't need a bridge between John chapter 9 and John chapter 10 because there was no break in the things that Jesus was saying. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees came on the heels of a miracle. So I go back to John chapter 9 to figure out what it is. And starting in verse 1, it says this, as he went along talking about Jesus... He saw a man blind from birth. And that's a really important circumstance because Jesus could heal people that had acquired blindness. Other rabbis and like, I don't know, like witch doctors and people that did medicine back in those days. They could heal someone's blindness. I don't know, like LASIK eye surgery who was had acquired blindness over time. But this is different. And the Bible specific for us. It's an actual messianic prophecy that the Jews believed that if somebody could heal somebody that was born blind from birth, that would not just be an indication that they were a really good healer, that would be an indication that they were, in fact, the one and only son of God. So the Bible gives us that detail as an important thing. This kid wasn't just blind because, ouch, ash, it fell in my eyes and now they're ruined. I can't see. No, like he was blind from the day he was born. And I kind of wonder what that's like. Like I know being at one of these hospitals, how you figure out if your kid can or cannot see, but I don't know what they did back in those days. Did they just wait for him to be able to walk and talk and start like running into things? This kid could not see stuff. And so Jesus went along and he saw a man that had been blind from birth, his disciples asked him, verse 2, Rabbi. This is a big important question. They weren't saying, Rabbi, could you stop and heal this guy? They were saying, Rabbi, teacher, Jesus, who sinned? Because in their context, if something was wrong with you, 
It was 100% attached to the suffering that you were experiencing because God was punishing you for the things you did wrong. But in this kid's case, he was born that way. And so they're asking Jesus like a common question. Like, okay, in this moment, why is this person blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Like, who was the culprit in this moment? Is he just being preemptively punished for the sins that he's going to commit later in his life? Or did his parents do something that was so wrong at the beginning, their punishment in life is having a kid born blind? That was their context. And that was what they understood. And Jesus gave them an answer that they did not expect. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And that didn't mean that the man was sinless or that his parents were sinless. He was just saying that there was no attachment to the sin that they had committed in life that had caused this kid to be blind. As long as it is day, that doesn't just mean daylight outside. Y'all, aren't you thankful that we get extended daylight outside? And aren't you thankful that it's not pouring down rain every day, all day? Because I feel like for three months in Nashville, we did not see light. I'm blessed by the fact that we're getting some sunshine here lately but this moment right here isn't just talking about the 9 12 15 hours a day where you can see in front of your face walking outdoors while it is day means while jesus is walking around with you while the light of the world is here for this 33 year period before he walks up to Jerusalem and willingly lays down his life, we'll get there in John chapter 10. While Jesus is still here, we must do the works of him who sent me. We got to get busy. Night is coming, my death is imminent. Nobody's going to work. It says in verse 5 While I am in the world, I am the light of the world what's going on like neither the guy sinned or or his parents sinned why did it happen he had answered that it happened so that the works of god could be displayed this moment in his life this difficulty that he faced this this timeline that he walked happened so that god's glory could be displayed and that's the not great answer that we have to hear too When stuff is wrong, when stuff doesn't go well, at the end of the day, regardless of when or if Jesus heals in this life, we know that everything that happens and the reason that it happens and the reason that we endure it is so that the glorious might of the power of God can be displayed in us and around us after this, after he said this, Jesus spit on the ground He made some mud with his saliva. This is not OSHA. This is not sanitary. This is like disgusting. Like what's happening in this moment? Like Jesus is literally spitting on the ground. I guess if you're Jesus, the son of God, your spit is not, I don't know, contaminated. Please don't try this at home. He spit on the ground. He made mud with his saliva and he put it on the man's eyes. I don't know if Jesus asked permission to put it on the man's eyes first. Clearly the guy couldn't see Jesus coming in and what was happening because he was blind. But he put it on the man's eyes. And then he said, go, verse 7, wash in the pool of Siloam. It it literally means sent. So the man went and washed. And and life change happened. It it says he came home seeing. So this this moment occurred. And and, and people, people, people couldn't believe it. And so you get his neighbors who had formerly seen him begging in Israel. They came around to other people and they're like, isn't that the guy that used to sit there born blind? 
And I find that so funny in scripture because he had never seen them. And they had really, even though they could have, not seen him either. Because they have this dialogue, if you continue reading in John chapter 9, like some people are like, oh yeah, that's him, I remember him, look at his face. He, I mean, like you can see, like, and some people are like, no, I don't think that's the same guy. And we raise our hand and we have those moments in life where, where you literally feel unseen. You see, this guy could have never seen them. But it's almost like they had also chosen to not see him. I sometimes feel unseen, unnoticed, unrecognized, un. Loved and, and, and you have maybe gotten to that moment before where you just don't think people see you or know you or like you or understand you or, or, or better yet understand what it's like to be you, to wear your shoes, to walk in your trials, to, to live your life. And at some point in us, we don't just want life. We're even willing to take less life as long as someone sees us and the life that we live. This guy didn't just want to see other people. He wanted to be seen by other people. Not just other people, but by the Lord. It's one thing to walk in a life where, where you don't feel seen by others. It's a, it's a whole other thing to live a life where you don't feel seen by God. And so, so, so clamor started happening in, in John chapter 9. People started trying to figure out, is that the guy? Is that not the guy? Is that the guy? That's not? And, and they ended up bringing him to the Pharisees. And some people wanted to catch him because they know that this moment had happened that would have been against the law that the people had enjoyed. And the Pharisees were charged, like self-appointed people who wanted to keep that law and to ensure that everyone else kept that law. And so this is the guy born blind. And, and, and they want to know what happened. Like, what were the circumstances? What did Jesus do? And who did it? They're trying to trap him. And they get to to the point where they realize, wait a minute, so what happened to you? And the guy's like, well, this man, he came to me, he spit on the ground, he put some mud in my eyes, and all of a sudden, I can see. And then they call him a liar, and they call him a sinner, and they don't believe him. And so they go to the guy's parents, and they want to say, is this your son who was born blind? And of course, the parents, they say, yes, absolutely, this is our son. He was born blind. We probably realized it when he was about two years old. He was running into things. He wouldn't play with it all. Like, whatever the circumstances were, this is our kid. He was born that way. And the Pharisees begin to question them, and the parents respond by saying, maybe you should just go ask him. He's, he's of age, he's an adult. He can tell you what happened and how it happened and why it happened. And if you land in John chapter 9, verse 22, you understand what the parents are doing. It, it, it says pretty clearly, his parents said this. He's of age, he'll speak for himself. They said this, why? They were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah could be put out of the synagogue in this moment that the parents are are worrying about being put out of the place that they enjoyed and the people that they enjoyed and the society that they enjoyed and the culture that they enjoyed the problem is when you're going the wrong direction and you're after the wrong things you will be afraid to leave it even if it's for the right reasons this kid who was born 
blind was healed. It was clearly the works of a Messiah. And they didn't want to say it out loud. So they deferred to their son. And their son proudly declared. If you continue reading in the chapter, he proudly declared later on to the Pharisees who were asking him the same question, saying, the guy who healed you is a sinner. He's done it on the Sabbath. The things that he's doing is against our law. And and the, the formerly blind man looked right back in their eyes and said, listen, If he wasn't from God, there is no way that he could have done this. If this man wasn't from God, he could do, verse 33, nothing. So Jesus engages with the Pharisees because now they've got their ammunition. He's done wrong. In chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens this gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech. But the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. We went from a man who was born physically blind to a group of people who had chosen to remain spiritually blind. The first challenge that, that comes our way with declaring Jesus in your notes this morning. The first challenge with, with religion in general it is the sheer number of options vying for our attention. It was just in this month's Time magazine, it, it was quoting in January of this year, um, the, 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 the Communist Chinese Party announced that it was going to sinicize Buddhism over the next five years, completing a multi-million dollar rebranding of the faith as an ancient Chinese religion. And I had to look up what that word sinicize means because I didn't understand it in the cultural context. Literally, it's a word that means to modify by Chinese influence. We're going to modify the history of Buddhism throughout all generations by our Chinese influence so that in five years, Buddhism will be completely rebranded as an ancient Chinese religion. The Chinese Communist Party, which wants to declare no religion and wants to literally be atheist in nature, is now adopting an ancient religion that they had previously expelled and exiled the Dalai Lama from Tibet so that he couldn't live there like 60 years ago. They're literally saying, we want to adopt this and rebrand it as if it's always been a part of us, we've got options. They actually want to do this so that in the next five years when this current Dalai Lama goes out, they can, literally, the Chinese Communist Party, as an act of government, select the new Dalai Lama. Why? Because he's popular and it helps their overall influence. Like worldwide, we've got options. You want to talk about the monotheistic ones? We've got Christianity. We've got Judaism. We've got Islam. You can be Muslim. Like we've got options out there. And then you've got all the isms, the Buddhism, the Hinduism, the pantheism, the Shinto. Like we've got a lot of isms out there. And every single one of them is in some way vying for our attention. And I read this week from Pew Research that the one that we should be concerned with the most is not any of those isms, but another ism. It's relativism. The idea that anything goes, it's the you do you of our generation. You do you. It's it's relativism. 
Only 35% of Americans believe in an absolute moral truth. 44% believe that everything is relative. 21% claim to have never really considered it, which automatically lumps them in with the 44%, making that effectively 65% of the people believe that you do you. 91% of people believe that the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. 79% of people say that you can believe whatever you want. People can go out and believe whatever it is they want as long as those beliefs don't affect in some way society at large. 57% say that whatever is right for you and works for you is the only truth that you can know. 60% say that it's extreme to attempt to convert others to your belief system. We have options. And we live in a framework in the world where to label any of those options as the only option or the best option or the right option or the true option is scandalous. To say that your way is the way is automatically labeling all other ways not the way and you're all of a sudden now a bigot because you believe in one true absolute God and the moral authority that comes from being his child and living your life according to whatever that word says. The problem with heading in the wrong direction is that you end up in the wrong destination and that the life, the abundant life, the fulfilled life, the forever life, the more than all kind of life that you want isn't available like you thought it would be going your own way. So the first challenge for us is that there's so many options available to us and that society at large wants to tell you that you can't say that the option that you choose to be available to you is the best option for you. Oh, maybe the best option for you, but not for everyone else too. Second in in, in list of dangers and to me far more dangerous than even the relativism that plagues society today is it is our spiritual blindness and the root cause of it. Was it this man who sinned or was it his parents? Like, what's the cause of his blindness? The blindness in chapter nine that was more concerning was not the blindness of the man that was born that way. It was blindness of the Pharisees who chose to remain that way in spite of the fact that the son of God was right there in front of them doing things that they could not imagine. Jesus healed that guy to illustrate his own glory And to meet his greatest need in our life. And it was an indication that he could heal the spiritual blindness that plagues us too. So he tells the Pharisees a story. He says, I'm I'm, I'm the shepherd. If the, the sheep, like this whole gate situation that he starts to talk about, you know, pens in Israel, when they had sheep, they, they tend to have this gate in the front of it. And that was the way in and that was the way out. And so. Jesus is telling a story and he was like that the shepherds would have hired like a, a younger shepherd, like an apprentice shepherd, like a like a little kid shepherd to be the one who stood at the gate to open it and close it when he was done. It's it's literally what I use my kids for in the backyard when I'm coming back in wheelbarrow in hand because I'm moving some mulch and we want to open the gate. We can't let the dog run out because she's crazy and she'll leave us. And then we'll have to post on the next door that the dog is loose and that we need people to come out and help us find. Like, I don't know who people do that because they post on the next door when they could be out there looking for their dog anyway. But we would have to literally post on the next door neighborhood website. Hey 
help us find our dog because she's lost. So I tell the kids, hey, you guys stand at the gate and make sure the dog doesn't run out so that I can effectively get in it. And that's what the shepherd did. Hey, you open the gate. I'm coming in. And the real shepherd would always use the gate and bring the sheep in and out that way. But a thief would come in some other way. Somebody who didn't belong there with the sheep would have to climb over the fence and start popping out over the other side. Like, no, the sheep recognized the shepherd's voice, but they didn't want to go with the guy that was toting them over the top of the fence because they recognized him as a thief who was trying to steal the life that only the shepherd can give. And Jesus tells that illustration like this, this whole gate situation with the shepherd walking by. Hey, come in the gate for me. Pharisees didn't understand it. Bible says clearly they didn't get what he was talking about. Everybody in life, we all want something. We all, we all want a life. We all want a way. We want a way in. We want a way out. We want a way up. We want a way down. We want a way into a group, into relationships, into community. Whenever you've been the new person in a situation and you feel like you're literally standing on the outside of a circle of people and, and, and you so desperately want to be in that because you want to be included in that, we're, we're crying out for a life that says, I want to be in something. But, but there are moments in life where we're crying out and they say, we want to be out. We want to be out of the problems, out of the trouble, out of the mire of our own demising. Like we want Lord to help us out. We, we want a way up. We want a way up to what's next, not just up the corporate ladder or the relational ladder or the life ladder. We want something, God, to take us to the next step in life, the next stage, the next opportunity, the next relationship. Sometimes it's even just the next day. But get us up out of the bed. We need a way in. We need sometimes a way out. We, we need a way to get up in the morning and to, to move up and to be a part of whatever we're supposed to be a part of in life. And sometimes we need a way down off the ledge, the proverbial ledge of our own making to say, Lord, deep breath, count to 10. Help me down. Help me to know the way to go. Help me to know the, the entry point to the life that you have for me. And the Pharisees didn't get it in that moment. You know, to be born blind or to be blind made you a social outcast. It, it made you someone whose lot in life could only be that of a beggar. Literally, this guy's only option in life, John chapter 9, was to be a, a, a beggar. Imagine being that person or being the parent of that person to realize that this is the only option for you when, when what we really want in life is life. A, a way to be included, a way to be a part of the family. This guy had spent his entire life being excluded. This guy had spent his entire life being avoided. This guy had spent his entire life with the community around him, labeling him and his parents as sinners, as unclean people. And we don't want to be too close to that because we might catch that like this guy, even by his own parents, had probably been left as someone who could be nothing. And yet Jesus came to be something else. He came to be his way. He came to be his option. He came to be his reality. See, nothing else was available to this guy but, but, but Christ. 
when nothing else is working in life, when nothing else is in, out, up, down, when, when no other way is taking us to the destination that we want, the life that we know that God has for us, what we realize is that Christ himself is the only real option. Everything else is a substitute. And I remember being a kid and like being in like the local grammar school and like sometimes like you'd be so excited when you had like a substitute teacher, but you wouldn't know why you had a substitute teacher. You could have a substitute teacher for a day. Because your teacher had to be out for, I don't know, something like they traveled, they like went somewhere for the weekend, or maybe one of their kids was at home sick. But then you could also come to school one day and figure out that you have a substitute teacher for the rest of the semester, a.k.a. maternity leave. Like that could happen. Like you don't know if the substitute is going to last one day. You don't know if the substitute is going to last three months. And that's the problem with our lives, too. We can try any number of substitutes for life. Some of them will last a second. Some of them can last months and years. Some of them can be our quote unquote substitutes for real life. For all of our life. And then you land like all of us will. On a deathbed. With hopefully someone that you love telling you that. You missed it along the way but it's not too late. Christ is the only real option. Some substitutes may last longer than others, but none of them will last forever. Jesus said in in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And it's an exclusive verse in Scripture. And rather than tiptoe around it, let's just circle the drain and go through it to say that Jesus Christ is it. We will say that as a church. We will proclaim that as a church. We won't be ugly about that as a church, but we will be loving with that truth as a church that Christ is it. He's not only the only real option, he's the only good option, the only one that promises an eternal life that someone else was willing to pay for. Jesus continued in that chapter. He said again, very truly to the Pharisees, the people that didn't believe in him, the people that didn't buy in, the people that didn't like him, the people that had something aggressive against him. Very truly, I tell you, I'm the actual gate for the sheep. All who have become before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. That means food. That means rest. That means life. The thief comes, verse 10, to steal and to kill and to destroy, to take all of that away. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full abundantly more than all the kind of life that they could ever imagine. He's not just the gate, but he also says, I am the good shepherd. And when this audience of Pharisees, this audience of legal experts heard him say, I am the good shepherd, they didn't just hear him say, I'm a nice guy. They heard him say that all of the other shepherds who had come before Israel were the same as the one that God had described in Ezekiel chapter 34 that Hollis read for us earlier today. They heard them say, Israel has been plagued with bad shepherds, bad prophets, bad leaders. But what they knew is that the great God of this universe had looked on his forlorn people and said, I myself, Ezekiel chapter 34, 
will shepherd my sheep. And so when Jesus Christ looked at this particular legal expert audience and community, he was saying to them, I am the good shepherd. He was saying, I am Ezekiel chapter 34. I am God himself who came to you to say, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bind your wounds. I'm going to heal your hurts. I'm going to give you community. I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to give you parasites. Life and life abundantly. Life more than all. Jesus didn't just say I'm the only way to real life. He said I'm the only way to a real good life. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Verse 18, he says that nobody takes it from me. We know what's going to happen as we approach Easter. He's going to be arrested, beaten, tried, convicted. But that wasn't the hands of the Roman government or the Jewish authorities. Jesus willing. Nobody takes his life from him. Verse 18, he says, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Verse 19, it says, the Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he's a demon-possessed man. He's raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, he got two sides of the coin, raving mad, or these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Why? Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? C.S. Lewis says it better than any of us could. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman Or worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. Kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense. About his being a great human teacher. He has not left us. Left that open to us. He did not intend to. Christ is either messianic Lord, like scripture claims, or he's nothing at all. And in John chapter 10, 19 through 21, the people were confused. Some said he was, and some says he wasn't. And what I say is, let's go ask the blind man. Let's go ask the one who got to the life he wanted. Let's go ask the one who understood who God was in the process. Let's go ask the one who found it what the right way is. I think as we approach Easter, there's so many questions that we should answer. Who are you in the story? Are you the man born blind? Just just desperate for God to see you and for Christ to act on your behalf? Or are you the spiritually blind who refuses to see that Jesus is here and here for you? What we want to be is a people who claim that there is a way And also that we found it and that his name is Jesus. He's the one who takes care of the sheep. He's the gate for them to come in. He's the shepherd who 
gets them there. Everything else in life, every other option in life comes to ultimately steal us, kill us, destroy us. He's come that we could have life. And, and, And the real question is, do you see it? Do you want to? What I hope is that we as a church over the next couple of weeks, diving into Jesus being this way, this truth, this, this absolute forever truth and, and the life that we so desire it, it is that ultimately we'll see salvation spring up. We'll, we'll see somebody come to the life-giving conclusion that I've tried everything else in life. I've understood everything else in life. I've gone down so many roads in life and they've all taken me further and faster away from where I know I want to, need to, have to be, surrender. I'll try Jesus. My my prayer is that we'll see some folks, many folks even, declare that, nope, this is it. These are not the sayings. These are not the words. these These are not the lies that the world would have us believe. This is not the foregone conclusion that some would proclaim. But this is actually the words of life. This is how we see. Can a demon heal the blind? This is how we see. And I pray that people would see. And that we would get to celebrate that. That the way we celebrate Jesus being alive will come alive in someone's heart and life. And we'll get to celebrate that too. Maybe that's you today. I'm going to pray a prayer and and, and just provide an opportunity for some self-reflection and some thought for you to consider and evaluate where it is that you might be in this great equation called life, exploring the many options that it presents and looking that Jesus is not just a choice, but he's the only choice. And I would love nothing more than to connect with you today before you leave. I'll be in the back just saying bye to folks. If if there's an opportunity that you would like to seize to talk about the spiritual thing that God is doing in your life and the blindness that he wants to eradicate so that you can fully see him. I'd love nothing more than to chat with you before you go today. But for all of us, we just want to land on a page where where, where we're evaluating our own spiritual sight. Some of you have 2020 and you just see and you know and you have faith that Jesus is who this word says he is, who I claim him to be. But some of us, it's a little bit skewed. You just got fuzzier, actually. I don't want anybody to, to live a life where, where somehow seeing Jesus, knowing Jesus, following Jesus is fuzzy or skewed in any way. We want to put on the lens. It might take a little mud where we can see him, but not just see him, follow him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for a day like today when we can turn our hearts and our attention and our lives towards you and who you are and what you want for us. My prayer for friends in this room and even those I haven't met yet, those who are brand new to us today, is that we would all discover and declare that you're it. You're the one. You're the one good shepherd that God promised. 
You're, you're the one way into life-giving community that we so desire. You're the one way out of the mess and mire that the rest of the world wants us trapped in. You are the way. And as we declare that boldly with our lives, what we commit to being is a people who will share that with others. Being among the 40% who don't believe that it's rude or arrogant or proud to share that with someone else and to impose and to offer that to someone else, but that ultimately we'll believe that that's the only life-giving, loving thing that we could ever do is to share the hope that we found in you. To be the kind of people who look at the community around us and say, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. And the only one who could have done that was the God who created me. It's in his name that we pray and to his fame that we dedicate all things. Amen.